Hey, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. I hope you're there already. Why the prison duds, you ask? I'm sure that's the question at the top of your list. Uh, well, I believe this. Uh, if you want to remember that these epistles that are written that Paul wrote were written from prison, this will help you remember it. Every time you pick up your Bible now, you're going to see this guy, right? In his prison duds. I'm sure he probably didn't wear black and white stripes like this with a number across the top. As a matter of fact, I'm sure he didn't. But I want you to think about Paul being imprisoned when he writes these things. About Paul uh, writing from a, a, a place of isolation. Not 201 Poplar, but he was on house arrest for two years when he wrote this epistle. The Apostle, prison, uh, the Apostle Paul was in prison um, in four cities, according to Acts. Four different places he went to prison. Uh, he was in prison in Philippi. He was in prison in Jerusalem. He was in, a, in prison in a place called Caesarea Maritama and in a place called Rome. We're familiar with that one. And so he wrote, think about this, he wrote those things that we love so much, those epistles that we take so much of our Christian living from, essentially being taken away from society, harbored away from society whenever he wrote some of these greatest works that we see in the New Testament. Four of his 13 epistles in the New Testament mention his imprisonment. And so due to the way that they're written, some of the things that he says in them, they're called the prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were all written while Paul was isolated away in some type of prison, some type of isolation away from other people. And the, and the tradition tells us that most likely Paul wrote these while he was, on, in, again, in house arrest in Rome uh, for two years, somewhere around A.D. 61 to 63. And so from prison, again, probably not behind bars when he wrote this, according to what I can read and what I can study, probably not behind bars, but guarded by a Roman guard nonetheless, uh, he penned this beautiful, encouraging letter that we're going to get uh, from Ephesians. Four different letters that we still mine for today uh, to get information from today. And so this is, just, this is just one of those reminders, just a visual reminder for you that he didn't write this from some air-conditioned office somewhere. He didn't have a nice office in the back of his church building like we do here for the pastors. Uh, he didn't write it in his suburban spread somewhere. He didn't write it in the middle of some big lavish lifestyle he didn't write it from some comfy seat in an office building or his couch while he was on vacation, but being, being guarded by a Roman guard. Sometimes in chains, he talks about it. He writes what we're about to get into today. So do this for me. Hold up two fingers like this. Everybody, come on. Hold up two fingers like this, please. Guess what this means? 
Well, peace, yes. We have two, ver- two verses today. <laughs> two verses today. That's what we're covering today. So we're going to speed through this epistle with two verses today where the old, we just preached through Genesis. If you're new to Refuge, we just preached through Genesis, and we would preach whole big pieces of, uh, of chapters at a time because it was one big story that was going on that might be told in a chapter. So we might preach through 50 verses in uh, a, a sermon. Well, today we get two verses. So uh, you can open your Bibles. I hope that you'll begin to follow along. Hope you'll use your scripture journals that you, uh, maybe you've picked up. If not, grab one of those today, or I will obviously have this on the screen for us. And here's the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all we're going to cover today. Grace to you and peace from our our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So so where was this letter sent? We're going to cover a little bit of stuff today that is going to give you a little bit of historical context for where we're going to be into today. But my prayer is, as I prayed for all week, because one, I like preaching out of the New Testament. It's just different to preach an epistle than it is to preach a long uh, narrative text. And so I get a little bit more excited because this stuff is just chock full of stuff for us today. Uh, so uh, I want to give you a little bit of historical context to help you understand uh, really what this epistle is all about. So Paul wrote this letter uh, to the churches around Ephesus, uh, and he did it uh, around, if you'll turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. If you've got your Bibles flipped there, if you're using your device, turn there. Uh, but Acts chapter 19 is where we're actually going to look at this today, because this is when Paul went to Ephesus, and the time that he spent in Ephesus whenever he was there, the first time that he was going to plant this church. And so you need to understand how your Bible's put together. Acts is probably where you're going to see a lot of these things. A lot of these New Testament books that we get are places that Paul visited back in Acts whenever he was going and actually setting the churches up. And so Acts is where he was there. The letters that he writes is when he was writing back to the churches that he had already established many times uh, that we see a lot of it happening in Acts. And so the intent of his writing, specifically in, um, uh, in the letters, was for just to, just to display the, the magnitude and the beauty of the grace of God, right? That's why he wrote these letters, just to remind them of how wonderful God is and what a, a, a joy it is to be part of the family of God. And, and so what a better place to start this New Testament series. And, uh, you know, if any of you, I'm sure, have probably ever wondered what God's plan is for you, right? We all want to know that. We all want to know what God's plan is. What's he got planned for me? What, what you up to, God? What do you got me? What, what's in my future? Is it, is it going to be like this? You know, is it, is it going to be something else? Is it going to be tragedy? Is it going to be prosperity? What is it going to be? Uh, but we all wonder what God's plan is for everyone, but uh, we just don't know that. He unfolds it to us along the way, and we just get to walk in it. We walk in it uh, by faith, that's for sure. And so the truth is that God's plan, God's plan was wrapped up in a mystery for thousands of years until the unveiling of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, that's, as we read through the Old Testament, uh, the, the things were kind of veiled and they weren't really sure about what all these things meant. But Jesus was the culmination of those things. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection were the culmination of the teachings and, and where all the, uh, the scripture was headed was to point to uh, Jesus. And so Paul Pen this letter to the church, again, is recorded in Acts chapter 19, and, and it includes what Christians should believe. 
So you may be wondering, maybe you're here and you're new and you go, I don't even know exactly what Christians believe, or I call myself a Christian, but I'm not sure what you guys believe. But it includes what Christians should believe. And, or maybe you wonder what it, what it means to be, what does it mean to live out the life as a Christian? What is, what is true about Christianity and what's not true about Christianity? If you're wondering those things, then this letter from Paul is for you. It's because it's going to explain and hopefully answer a lot of your questions that you may have. Paul drives home one of my favorite parts of the Bible, and uh, it's one that I just go to on a regular uh, basis, something that we say here a lot, the fact that dead sinners are made alive and gain eternal salvation by grace through faith, okay? You gain eternal salvation. You get a right relationship with God by grace through faith. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, uh, that's two words, but I like to put it as one word. Uh, your own doing, uh, it is the gift of God. For by grace you have been saved. It is the gift of Grace is the gift of God. You have been saved through faith. And the, so salvation is an act of God. Salvation is a work of the Lord. Uh, amen? So, yeah, so you didn't just decide, just as an FYI, you didn't decide one day that I'm going to follow Jesus on your own. It literally took the Holy Spirit in acting on you, awakening you from death to life. We sing about that here. We preach about that here. It took the Spirit of God awakening you to the gospel, opening your eyes, and seeing that you desperately need a Savior, giving you the faith to believe. And, and then Paul, turn, he'll turn his uh, attention to the imperatives that if, if this is true about you, that if you've been saved by grace through faith, then this is the way that you should live your life. You should live your life in a certain way. Uh, uh, how should we live as individuals and as a family and as the church? So Paul will talk about that in Ephesians. And then Paul wraps up this letter in Ephesians to, uh, uh, with his command to stand firm in the armor against all the schemes of the devil. Because once you become a follower of Jesus, once you become a Christian, then you have an enemy that is out, set out to destroy you, okay? The schemes and the wiles of the devil, he has set out to destroy you. He has set out to try to put you back in chains. He has set out to destroy you. He has set out to deceive you with things that may sound truthful, things that may make you feel good, but he has set out to deceive you so as to draw you away from the truth, Amen. I mean, some of us have experienced that, right? If you're a Christian, you have probably experienced that somewhere in your life. And so that's what Ephesians, that's kind of Ephesians overall in general about where we're going with this. So the question is this, what, what was Ephesus like? What was it like to be in the city of Ephesus during the time whenever Paul was writing this letter to them? Uh, well, the book of the Revelation uh, contains messages to seven cities. If you go to the, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but the last book of the Bible is the book of the Revelation. Uh, and it, uh, it contains um, messages to seven cities of Asia Minor. Uh, and uh, that was, um, uh, so that was during Paul's day, uh, it speaks of Ephesus and Smyrna and uh, Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And so it's written there, and, and, and uh, Ephesus is one of those cities that is written to. And these cities were arranged around in kind of this urban kind of circle around, and they were, they, they were kind of all encircled uh, together. And uh, Ephesus was kind of the, the centralized point around all these cities that you read about in the Revelation. Um, 
And so I think that the Ephesians was actually a letter that was intended for all these churches. It was a letter that was intended not just specifically for the church at Ephesus, but for multiple churches uh, during that time. So Ephesus was uh, kind of the gateway to Asia. If you were if you're on your way to Asia, you would you would probably go through Ephesus to get there. You you would go through there to kind of that's where you would uh, kind of walk through. And once you got to Ephesus, you'd go, "Hey man, I'm here. I'm in Asia now, and and so I'm here, and and, and I've made it." And so we might think of those things uh, in some different ways. I, I looked up some other gateways to cities and. And so Pittsburgh, supposedly, is called the gateway to the west because that's where the Ohio River and the Mississippi River meet. And so that's what Pittsburgh is called. It's called the, called the gateway to the west. Uh, and a lot of river traffic comes through there. And, and so especially way back in the day, that was a crucial city uh, to, what, to travel during that day. Uh, Chicago is one of those cities that, that you go to today, and it's kind of, uh, it, it was built in the day uh, to be a gateway uh, moving from east to west. Uh, the highways would run north and south and east and west uh, through Chicago, or closer to home, Corinth was one of those things back in the day during the Civil War. There was, there was, there was called the Crossroads City. There were two railroads that go through Corinth, and that's why it was such a, uh, a crucial uh, city during the Civil War because they wanted that access to go multiple ways on the railroad, the Crossroads City. And so uh, Larry McBee, uh, he goes down there lots of times and, and searches for artifacts. So our artifact goes there and looks for other artifacts. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so just like these cities were strategic points that we're aware of, Ephesus was a strategic city uh, in its specific region. And, uh, and so Ephesus was famous for this temple that it had there. It's famous for this huge, big temple. And uh, it was a, a temple to the goddess Diana, uh, or her name was Artemis in Greek. And so the temple Diana was one of seven wonders of the world. It was 425 feet in length and 220 feet in width. So I was thinking, how big is that? I don't exactly know how big that is, so I think everything in the size of football fields, you know, that's kind of how I think about things. And so think, I was thinking, all right, so it's bigger than a football field, so it's kind of like the Liberty Bowl Stadium. That's a kind of a good example. That's close to what it was like. So as big as the Liberty Bowl Stadium is, uh, uh, so think about that being built back in the day. And then I read that it was, architecturally, it was composed of 127 white marble columns, each 62 feet high. 62 feet high. So here's a picture uh, of what it might have looked like. Look at that thing. That's huge. And so this was the temple that was erected in Ephesus that was a temple to Diana. And so this was kind of one of those center point things of this pagan worship. And so um, Diana was said to have fallen straight from heaven. That, that, was, that was who she was. She literally came straight from heaven, and she was popular among pagans. And so, it, again, it was a, uh, Ephesus, one of those religious cities that was full of pluralism and served and, and worshipped a lot of different things, but specifically uh, Diana. And again, the stadium was built uh, during the time when she was there, and, and they would do all kinds of different um, uh, it would seat about 25,000 people during the time of the city. The city was about 250,000 people. Uh, and, and so the stadium or the, the temple of Diana had close links to the commerce that went on in the city. 
It was a tourist center, and temple cult worship would happen here. Uh, and Diana was the fertility goddess as, as the time, and so she was also the fertility goddess of the woods and of the hunt. So uh, Dalton and my hunters don't get distracted here, uh, but she uh, was also she really. If you were going hunting and you were going into the woods, you would pray to this goddess Diana to give you uh, uh, some good luck. And so this image of Diana, now this, I was like, I don't know, do I really want to see what Diana looked like? Of course I do, uh, because I'm curious. And, and so Diana represented this figure of this crowned woman with multiple breasts to signify fertility. And, and so that's kind of the picture of her. Um, and, and so this, I, I came across this. This is kind of what, this is a statue of Diana. And so the, those, those were multiple breasts because it, it was all about her being Fertile Myrtle, uh, I think was her nickname. Uh, <laughs> um, and so this was Diana. This was what they thought about. This is who they worshiped. The pagans would worship in the day in the city of Ephesus. And so this is what Paul went into, okay? Not that we would have anything like that today, right? We wouldn't worship anything other than the one true God today, right? I mean, our, our, our culture does around us, right? And so they, we might not have statues that actually set up, and, and sometimes we do, right? Our culture builds statues of other people that get worshipped and other God, so-called gods that get worshipped. And so Paul was going into this in Ephesus and with this message of the gospel, and he encountered just a little bit of friction along the way. Can you imagine? And so the biblical account of Paul's travels in Ephesus, you can go back to Acts chapter 19, because that's where we're going to be. It tells us that the apostle had conflicts with various branches of this pagan community that he had encountered. And they were, his, listen, his um, uh, conflicts were a direct result of his powerful ministry in that area. I want you to hear what I just said. Listen. The conflicts in his life were a direct result of his ministry. Let that sink in for just a second. The conflicts in his life were a direct result of his ministry. His conflicts were over the gospel. His conflicts were over the truth. His conflicts were over the hope that he was bringing that was found in Jesus. His conflicts that he uh, encountered were over the one true God. Not over a bunch of other garbage and sidebars. So let, let, me, just, let me just say this. If Paul, the, the text tells us in, in Acts chapter 19 that he would go in and he would argue or he would, he would persuasively talk to people, but it was to let them know that there is one true God and it's not this one. That there's one true God to be worshiped and he used his words to point people to Jesus and the hope of the world. And so, my encouragement to you and to me is to let your words be used wisely. If you're going to spend some oxygen, if you're going to spend some words, if you're going to spend some of your energy and you're going to create some conflict, let it be about arguing persuasively about Jesus. 
Let it be arguing for eternal things rather than things that just don't matter. Not about some kid walking through your yard or even girls wearing crop tops to school. Those are just arbitrary things that I just came up with off the top of my head. Uh, But some of the people, because he was speaking about the gospel, because he was speaking about the hope of the world, and he was crushing Diana and the hope that, no hope that is found in Diana, that he was speaking of life that is found only in Jesus, some of the people that he spoke with became obstinate. And they refused to believe anything that he had to say. And they uh, they became angry and they maligned him, or which means they... They, they spoke critically about him. They, they had terrible things to say about him. And so if people are going to speak terribly about you, let it be because you spoke in the gospel. I mean, you can get into this other garbage that, that we uh, talk about and we, and we post about on social media and we get in arguments with our neighbors about and all those kind of things. But if people are going to speak obstinately about you, let it be because they're offended by the gospel. The gospel is offensive to those who are outside the household of faith. It makes people mad. I can remember. Listen, it's not even in my notes, but I'm going to tell you this anyway. I can remember this. I grew up in church, claimed to be a Christian the whole nine yards, moved to Memphis, was not a Christian, but claimed to be, which is probably like some of you. You claim to be a Christian, but you're probably not. If there's no fruit in your life, if there's nothing that points to Jesus, if there's nothing in you that shares the light of the world, if you're not care about the things of God, then you're probably not a Christian, okay? Just being honest with you where I was 30 years. Uh, but people would come by my house from churches when I lived in Southeast Memphis. And they'd knock on the door and I'd go, oh, church people again, you know. And they wanted to talk about Jesus. They wanted to ask me if I was saved. They wanted to know if I, you know, if, if I died tonight, what would happen to me? And I'd give them the right answer because I knew the answers. I was a church kid. And I wasn't saved. I was obstinate. And I was angered over the fact that they would come and talk to me about Jesus. How dumb is that? But my heart was dead, dead to the things of God. And if you get angry over things, people talking to you about the things of Jesus, your heart's probably dead too. If this doesn't stir emotions that are joy-filled emotions when you talk about Jesus, then you're probably dead in your trespasses and sins too. And you need to repent and believe the gospel. You need to become a Christian. So when these people were obstinate and angry with Paul, he leaves them. He's like, you know what? I, I, I'm kind of done here. I, I've done all that I can do here. And so he left and he took some disciples with him. And, but, but then it says he had discussions in these lecture halls and in the halls of Tyrannus. And, and this went on for two years. And, and it says so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Look, look in Acts chapter 19, verses 8 and uh, eight through 10. I'll have it on the screen, but you may have it in your Bibles because this is just interesting how, how, this, how your Bible ties together. Look what it says in verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months, for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. He spoke boldly, strongly, reasoning with them, which means he was dealing with some some pushback 
If you're going to talk about Jesus, people are going to have pushback. You need to be able to defend what it is that you believe, speak reasonably about that, and persuadingly about that. And he, so he, he uh, spoke boldly, reasoning, and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, which is what Christians were called during that time, the way, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the halls of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. How cool is that? that so many people got to hear the good news of the gospel. So Luke records uh, that, God, that God did extraordinary things through Paul during this time as well. And so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that he would use, uh, that people would that he would touch, people would take back to where they were before, and they, the illnesses that they had would be cured. So, so Paul would take a handkerchief and he would just touch it, and somebody would take it and like lay it on their sick person, and wow, they were healed. How cool is that? Now. Look, where, where do you get that from, preacher? You a faith healer up here? Well, I'm just going to tell you what the scripture says. Look at verse 12 in Acts chapter 19. It's in your Bible. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So this is happening in Acts. And so this today is where the faith healers come from, okay? So you've probably seen them on TV. You might have been held up in some of their cults before. You might have been held up in some of their churches before uh, where they uh, say that if you'll send them some what? Oh, well, y'all know this. If you'll send them some money, uh, then they'll send you their personal uh, uh, prayer cloth in the mail, and then you can take that prayer cloth and lay it on your uh, uh, sick person, and they'll be healed. Well, we hear a lot about this part. We just don't hear a lot about this part. We don't hear a lot about people actually being healed because here, let me explain to you a little bit of art and science of biblical interpretation. But if you get to Acts, the Spirit was doing some things in Acts. The church was being birthed in Acts and the Spirit was doing some things that are not necessarily normative today. Now, what that doesn't mean is that it doesn't mean that God cannot and does not heal today, okay? That's not what I'm saying. Here's what we believe, refuge. We believe at Refuge that none of the gifts have ceased. No gifts have ceased. There's nothing in the scripture that tells me that any of the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. So can people be healed? Absolutely. Can people that are sick have hands laid on them by people and pray over them and then be healed? Is that a yes or a no? Can that happen? Yes, it can. We've seen it happen in this church before. We've seen, we've laid hands on women whose wounds were closed before, and we've seen the Spirit open their wounds and give them babies before. And so we've seen that happen in this church before. And so God still does things like that. That's just not the normative way. It's just not the normative way. And so to understand that is critical to your life in following Jesus, critical to your life in understanding the scriptures, and critical to your life in understanding charlatans that come across with prayer cloths that you send them money for that have no value. Crucial. You tracking with me, church? Some of you are. He goes on to this and says, sorry, I've lost my place. Here's, here's what he goes on to say. 
And so as Paul's impact grew in this region, and as Paul's influence grew in this region, um, these people who were practicing this occult, uh, they began to burn all their notes. They began to burn their books. They began to burn everything that they had around what it was that, that, that practiced something else. And uh, people who practiced sorcery during that time, they, they brought their scrolls together and they burned them publicly. And, and when they calculated the value of these scrolls and things that they burned, they came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Look what the text says in verse 19. And the number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And so this was Paul's influence against paganism during this time. You know what the current value of 50,000 pieces of silver would be? About half a million dollars. About half a million dollars of stuff on the occult that they chose to burn because they believed what it was that Paul was saying. Now, that didn't set so well. Again, Paul's in Ephesus. And he's coming with the, the, the message of reconciliation. And he is, he is speaking the, the, the truth of the gospel. And now he's, again, remember he's writing about this, being uh, uh, imprisoned, essentially, in, not in prison, but he's being held and guarded in a room. And he's writing back, back about this right now. But in Acts chapter 19, it, it didn't go so well. This is what it records. Look what it says in verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way, again, is the Christians, those who were following Jesus, and no little disturbance means what? A big disturbance. It's, it's no little disturbance means what? Y'all listening? What's the opposite of little? Yeah, so no little disturbance means what? A big disturbance, okay? So about that time there arose a big disturbance concerning Christians during that time. That's what that essentially means. Look, verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with his workmen in similar trades. He said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away great many people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into dispute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and she, and she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And so the Ephesians were triggered. I mean, they were, they, they were triggered over Paul's work there. And they were like, well, wait, you, you mean these man-made gods aren't really gods at all? You mean all this stuff that we've been worshiping our life is, is not even really true? Paul's like, that's what I'm saying, bro. Here's the thing I want you to know is Christianity is not at peace with idolatry. Christianity is not at peace with idolatry. And you're like, yeah, we know that preacher. Well, let me dig a little bit closer to get comfortable. What is idolatry? 
The worship of someone or something other than God as though it were God. That's idolatry. The worship of something or someone as God as though it were God. Practically, what does that really mean? It means that anything you set as a higher value above God becomes your idol. Okay? Anything that is set as a higher value above God becomes your idol. Now, if you get uncomfortable with this and start squirming in your chair, we're just going to say that it's coming from the Spirit and not me. Amen? I'm blaming this on the Lord because this is going to touch some of you. So that means if you set your kids above God, your kids have become your idol. Some of that is true about some of you. Okay? Your kids are your idol. You do anything for them before you do anything else in your life. You set them as your highest value over God, worship, anything else. They're your highest value. We default to them. They're the ones that run the show. Maybe it's your job. Maybe your job becomes your idol, where you set your job as the highest value above your Christian faith above what it means to follow Jesus. You'll set your Christianity aside. You'll compartmentalize your Christianity so that you can be successful in your job. Then your job has become your idol. Maybe it's money. I'll find a way to earn money. I'll find a way to keep money. I'll find a way to get my own money. And I'll set God aside. And this will become my highest value to earn and and, and get as much money as I possibly can. And God will come whenever I feel like I need him. Money has become your idol. Maybe it's your home. My home is my castle. I close the doors. I pull the shades down. This is where we live. Nobody gets in. Nobody gets out. I I control the borders here. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me to entertain people, even though the scripture tells us to be hospitable to people, because this is my home. This is my stuff. Ain't nobody come to break my stuff. Anybody can break my kids' toys either. Security, security, uh, not that security, security, meaning safely. We, we, we think that safety is our thing. We think just being safe and we can just extend our life somehow, then that becomes the highest value to us for us to be safe in whatever we're doing. This, following Jesus is not safe. It's not safe. He never said it'd be safe. He said, we're safe in his arms, that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. Paul said, hey, you kill me to live as Christ, to die as gain. You know, it just gets better for me. You know, cut my head off, stick a dagger in me. I'm done, you know, I'll be with Jesus, whatever. I like it here, but if you want to take me out, I'm out. We should live that way. I always tell people that I'm immortal until God says it's time for me to go. You can't kill me. Shoot me how you want to. I'll, I'll matrix those bullets as long as God don't want me to die. You know what I'm saying? I'll see them like slow motion. Yeah, you know, you can't kill me unless God wants me to die. Nationalism. Look, man, I'm red, white, blue. I love USA. Love, proud to be an American. I got a, I've got a, uh, uh, an American flag up in my yard on a flagpole now, followed closely by the Mississippi State National Championship trophy uh, flag underneath it. 
but that's second only to my American flag. And so I'm proud to be an American, but I'm not an American first. I'm a Christian first. I'm a follower of Jesus first. And sometimes that means saying and doing things that may not be popular to most Americans. I'm a conservative uh, Christian American, so I'm pretty much kind of the minority these days, as some of you are. But that's not my highest value. Uh, uh, that's my highest value, not my Americanism. Get me? If America is higher than your Christian value, then America has become your idol. And I love America. We're fortunate to be born here. We're fortunate to live here. It's the best life there is. Baseball. Y'all know what I'm talking about. If that's your highest, your kids' sports, if that's more important to you than your relationship with Jesus, that's become your, you see what I'm tracking here? Idolatry is not just some Diana, uh, you know, multi-breasted fertile myrtle up here. This uh, idolatry becomes the things that we deal with on a regular basis, okay? We think about that as idols. We have our own idols in our life. And I'm just telling you that Christianity is not at peace with idolatry. So what is most important to you, that's probably your idol. Who, Lord have mercy. So Paul tells people in this letter how to deal with and be different from the pagan world. And we'll see more examples as we get into this. And we agree with Paul. He just says this. He just says live differently. That's, Ephesians is about, all right, I'm going to give you 15 seconds. Back with me? Come on. Paul says that we're called to live differently as Christians. We're, we're called to just be different, live different. Our lives are called to be something different. And, and so the scene at Ephesus was the triumph of the gospel over uh, uh, the pagan idolatry. And so the, this temple that we talked about of Diana was once one of the seven wonders of the world. You know how many members it has today? It's a round number. Yeah, zero. There's none. There's, no, there's nobody in that. There's nobody that is part of that uh, thing. So Diana wasn't so great after all. I, I was going to get into uh, the, the, the thing about is Paul the author, but that's, that's the whole thing, and I'm just basically doing a circular argument because I believe he is. And there, there's late, late people today in the last 200 years ago. I'm not sure Paul wrote it, but I'm not sure I agree with that either. So uh, I'm pretty sure that Paul wrote it, and that's what we're going to go with uh, today. If you have questions about that, I'm happy to talk about that with you. Uh, so let's, let's look back at uh, uh, verse 1. Uh, the first verse of Ephesians, uh, Paul says he was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. You're a circular in the Bible? Circle that. By the will of God, uh, that uh, the word translated, it, the will is a form of the word, which is a strong word to indicate divine sovereignty. So uh, if you say... Uh, in the original language, Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God, would also be saying Paul, an apostle of Christ by divine sovereignty, okay? So uh, he was an apostle because God said he was. And so he became the apostle, and Paul said, hey, I didn't make myself an apostle. I was appointed by God to be an apostle. I have authoritative degree to be saying these things to you and to be writing these things to you. And, and, there, and so there's every reason to affirm that same thing that he was writing. And so he says, I'm an apostle of God by Christ Jesus, the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful who are in Christ Jesus 
Um, let's see, verse two. Uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul said, um, we know it went to Ephesus. He was writing this letter to Ephesus where they went to one church or multiple churches. It's kind of irrelevant. He said, I've got some things that I need to say, which begs the question, are you part of the faithful in Christ Jesus? Here's all your background. Here's what we're getting to today. Are you part of the faithful in Christ Jesus? Would Paul have been writing this letter to you? If you were in Ephesus, would he be saying, uh, I'm writing it to you. The question is, are you a Christian? Listen, are you a Christian? Would Paul have labored in chains or in the isolation of a, a, a Roman house arrest to get this letter to you? He, he penned this great theological treatise and instruction to the church during his day, uh, that one that's lived on clearly for centuries because he truly believed what he was saying. He literally knew the risen Christ, and he wanted others to know that same Jesus that had risen and had changed him and made him different and caused him to be a different man. The question is, do you know that same Jesus today? What is salvation about? It's literally being known by God. I mean, be knowing God and being known by God. And shouldn't that make some kind of difference in our life? Certainly did in Paul's case. Do you think, listen, do you think Paul had to be cajoled into worshiping Jesus? Do you think Paul had to be enticed to gather with the church whenever he could? Do you think Paul had to be convinced to lay his life down for the sake of others? By no means. Because the Jesus that changed Paul on the inside made a difference on the outside. The Jesus that, that Paul met made Paul be a different man. Paul writes elsewhere in this letter, and other letters that, listen, salvation is found in no other. There's hope found in no other but Jesus Christ. There's no salvation in yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't do enough good to be in this kind of relationship that Paul had with Jesus, that I have with Jesus, that many of his people in this room have with Jesus. You can't do enough good to be in the right relationship to make yourself good enough to be in that kind of relationship. There's salvation found in no other but in trusting in the finished work of Jesus. At the end of Acts, here's what, here's what Paul says in the very end. He said, he was lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What did he have faith in? What was Paul's faith in? The literal sinless life of Jesus that he died on a cross to cover our sin debt. When, when you hear that Jesus died on the cross to cover your sins, the scripture tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That the, bull, the blood of bulls and goats, that they sacrificed all these animals, didn't forgive anybody's sin. It was only pointing to the Lamb of God who was to come. That there's salvation found in no other. His, his, his sinless life, his death, that he died on the cross, that they buried him. And three days later, Jesus literally rose from the dead, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. 
Paul wanted people to know that Jesus came to save sinners. And so I'm glad that he didn't come to save my self-serving expectations or my skewed, squirrely definition of loving God. He came to save you from your sins. He came to save me from my sins. He came to fill the cosmos with his glory. With this, I'm going to be closed. Paul was able to be Paul and write from the isolation that he was in, beaten many times, left for dead many times, because his hope was not in this world. His hope was not in anything tangible in this world, but in the risen Jesus. He, the, the risen Jesus, the assurance that Jesus really was God the Son, that he really was raised from the dead, and he really does offer forgiveness and transformation, forgiveness from our sins. Paul even pointed that in verse 2. He said, grace to you, which is the unearned kindness of the Lord. Peace with God, no more wrestling with God, no more worried about is God mad at me. Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace that is greater than all your sins. And so from the prisoner apostle around 60 AD and from a gospel preacher sitting in some striped clothes on Sunday morning, we bid you both to come to Jesus. Be free from the chains that bind you. Be set free from the sin that entangles you. Trust the prison-shaking Savior, the chain-breaking Savior, the sin-forgiving Savior. We welcome you to repent and believe the gospel today to become a faithful follower of Jesus Christ today. Let me pray for us.